You're listening to audio from Living Grace Church in Tyler, Texas. To find out more about Living Grace, go to livinggracetexas.org. And he said to his disciples, Temptation to sin are sure to come, but who to the one through whom they come? It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And this is the word of the Lord. All right. So Luke 17. Uh, thank you so much, Nathan, for reading that for us today. Uh, but if we go back to Luke 15, uh, starting in verses 1 through 2, it says this. This is kind of the context of where we get Luke 17 from. and says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them, verses 1 through 2. And so this is the context of Luke 17 is that it's a whole um, I guess you can say it's, it's many conversations, not just a one-off, but it started in Luke 15. They were accusing him of wanting to be around sinners and eating with sinners. And so he goes to the story of the prodigal son. He talks about Lazarus in Luke 16. Uh, and so now we get to Luke's chapter 17. And really what we're looking at in these verses at first is it can seem like all of this is kind of scattered. But if you truly understand that verses 1 through 4 are really commands, so they're not so much just things to think about, not guidelines, but as followers of Jesus, Jesus was talking to his disciples and said these, right, those first four verses. And then we see verses five and six was their reaction and the exposure of their reaction of what was going on in their hearts being acknowledged when they said, increase our faith. And then verses seven through 10 shows what, our posture and what Jesus was saying our posture should be, which was we are unworthy servants. And so this is the outline of the sermon is that we see the commands, we see the reaction to the commands, and then post that we see what the posture that we must have as followers of Jesus. So if we start in verse 1, Jesus is, you know, when he says, it is temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. And so what Jesus is talking about is stumbling blocks, right? These temptations, these, you know, this, you know, we would say, uh, you know, I got to be careful with that. That's like a stumbling block to me. That, that tempts me. I, I struggle with that. And so we see so Jesus is saying, woe to the one by whom you may lead somebody else into sin because you are tempting them, is what he's saying in verse 1. Uh, but literally, he's almost saying it is impossible 
for the stumbling blocks not to come. In other words, stumbling blocks are guaranteed to come in the life of disciples, right? You are not immune. Temptation, Jesus wasn't immune from dealing with temptation. You are not immune, right? No matter who you are, you will deal with stumbling blocks. You will deal with temptation. But Jesus is saying, woe to the one by whom it comes. You see, the believer, or we as believers, can count on stumbling blocks in that they will continually come to try to trip us up, for we have three persistent, powerful enemies here in this world. The world, the flesh, and the devil that are always trying to trip us up, that are always trying to get us off the path of pursuing Jesus. There's a commentator uh, on this passage, his name's Stephen Cole, and he says this, We live as sinners in a sinful world. And so we are prone to sin against others, and they are prone to sin against us. But just because we are all prone to sin, it does not follow that we should just go with the flow. Rather, we should do all that we can to avoid sinning against others and leading them into sin. And we should do all that we can to avoid taking offense when others sin against us, and to avoid being led into sin by the bad example or teaching of others. The major reason that we are so prone to sin against others and to take offense when others sin against us is that our sinfulness prompts us to justify ourselves and to blame others. And so what he's saying is that we should strive, right, to not be the ones that are causing others to stumble. But if somebody is help or is trying to lead us to that, entice us, pull us away from following the path of Jesus, is that we too must be on guard and to keep ourselves from following that temptation, right? Because temptation is not a sin. Temptation is not, right, just because you're tempted doesn't mean that, that you sinned in that moment, but rather when you give in to that temptation, then comes sin in your life. And so that's why we say Jesus was tempted, but he never sinned because sin, I mean, temptation is never sin. And so stumbling blocks here, if we want to dive a little bit deeper into this, is if you imagine a piece of wood, um, the original like picture of it is like a piece of wood that was set up for an animal trap. So meaning if the animal hits the piece of wood, then they would be ensnared in the trap. And so this idea is if you can picture this cage, right, this animal, and so it would hit the stumbling block, it would trigger the trap and be locked in. And so the word is now used of any enticement to sin especially sin that leads someone to abandon Christ, stop following him or to cause a brother or sister in Christ who is weaker to fall into sin. So a stumbling block is any enticement to sin, especially one that leads someone to abandon Christ, abandon beliefs of Christ, to cause a brother who, or sister in Christ who is weaker to fall into sin. So Many in the Christian life, right, there is this idea of freedom and convictions, and people talk about this idea. Um, but as believers, right, is that this passage goes into that, right, is that though we have freedoms, we have convictions of certain things, it doesn't mean that we can just have liberty whenever, however we want, just because we don't think this thing is a sin to us. So example would be alcohol, right? May get in trouble for this later. But alcohol is not a sin if you didn't know it. Alcohol in itself is not a sin, right? Getting tipsy is a sin. Getting drunk is a sin. Going that gray area is a sin. Getting wasted is a sin. Getting 
lit is a sin. Not knowing what happened the night before is sin. Not being able to be spirit-controlled because of alcohol is sin, right? All the above is sin. If you cannot control your mouth, your slur, your words, your mind, your emotions, that is sin. And But to go further than that, right, is that if, let's say, the reason I say an example, a weaker brother, is that let's say you're like, I don't see alcohol is a sin. If you're wondering, in our household, right, Jamie and I, we don't have alcohol, we don't sin. I mean, sorry, we don't drink alcohol in the house, right? Have I drank alcohol before? Alcohol before? Yes, right? I have drinking. But in itself, right, it is not sin. But let's say, let's say I, I have friends who really struggled with alcohol, where it was a major stumbling block for them. They were rabid drunks. I mean, they were getting going to every party, and they, it led to many, many awful bad decisions in their life. Now, let's say I'm like, hey, it's not a big deal for me. I don't, you know, let's say I'm like, you know, no big deal. I drink every, you know, once a year, twice a year, not a big deal. But let's say I have that once or twice a year drink in front of my brother who has dealt with this for many decades. Jesus is saying it's better that a millstone be tied around my neck before I ever go to dinner with this person. Why? Because I have led this one who is less mature in a certain part of his faith to stumble in this fact because I saw it as a freedom, right? So we have to be careful that in our freedoms, because something for us is a sin, right? Not just alcohol. There's many different things. But just because it is a freedom for us, it doesn't mean that it won't be the reason why somebody else stumbles in their walk. Because you may be able to handle this thing, that thing, whatever it is, that you're like, hey, the Bible is not clear about it. It's a matter of conscience. And there are things in this world that are a matter of conscience between you and the Holy Spirit. But if that choice, that matter of conscience, leads somebody else down a path that they find themselves back into sin, into temptation, or into sin, into addiction, and it's because they saw you do it, then you, Jesus is saying, it's better that you have a millstone, a huge rock, be tied around your neck before you ever talk or be or have dinner with that person. Once again, probably going to get an email for that later, but it's okay. So Jesus is saying, millstone, right? You might have liberty, but they might not, right? Because ultimately, it's not about you. And this is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's not on the screen, sorry, Isaac back there. But on 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 23 through 24, it says this. It says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. So you see the difference there is that my, if I'm wanting this brother or sister to grow in their walk with Christ, then I may think that I have freedom, but really is I'm going to set those aside because I want this person to be more in love with Jesus more than I want to enjoy this thing. Because even though there are these freedoms, is that none of these freedoms ultimately are more satisfying than Jesus Christ himself, than abiding in Christ, having a relationship with Christ, and finding wholeness in Christ. Because many times these freedoms are the pathway by which you fall into more temptation to get drunk, to get tipsy. Why? Because ultimately you're not running to Jesus to deal with the things of this world. You're running to these things. You're running to food. You're running to to guys, girls, you're running to alcohol, you're running to drugs, running to anything else but Jesus, and then you wonder why you don't find your, 
Jesus is more satisfying and why you run to these things and you repeat the same problem over and over. Why? Because you had a freedom that led to temptation, that you were in sin, and ultimately you now have an idol in your life that this freedom all started from. So if you're wondering, oh, is Kai want us to drink alcohol? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is be careful of your freedoms in the Lord because they can cause somebody to stumble and to, and to miss out on the life that God is calling them to have. And it makes sense why Jesus says next, be on your guard. Be on your guard or pay attention to yourselves, verses 3 through 4. Because living a life where it's not just about you is not easy. Living a life where you have to actually think about your brothers and sisters in Christ and then count the cost of the decisions you make is not easy, right? You have to think about, will your next words cause someone to stumble, then we keep our mouths shut. Will your next action cause someone to stumble or your sin against them? Pause and ask the Lord what you should do. Will your next text message, email, DM, cause somebody potentially to stumble and to fall into sin, then you might not want to send that message. Will your post on Facebook, that picture, that ad, whatever it is that you want to post that everybody in the world has to see and know what you're going to post on Facebook, when you post that thing on Instagram, Facebook, is, it, is there a chance you're going to cause someone to stumble and then by that, you've got to question whether or not it's worth posting. And if you're like, oh, who cares? I, everybody's got to know where I stand. Then it's like, do you not care about the betterment of your neighbor? Do you not seek your neighbor's own good? Would you rather have that post in a personal conversation? I'm not saying don't be, you know, stand up for Christ, stand up right. I'm not saying be, you know, timid for standing for what you believe in Christ. But even in that freedom, is there somebody is there a believer, is there somebody close that when you post that, when you say that, could lead them to stumble because maybe they're not a strong believer? Maybe they're not as mature as you are. So we have to be careful. And really, you have to figure out why you have to say that, post that, do that, text that, email that. What deep within you is causing you to want to say this, do this, send this? What's, what deep within you is causing you to do this? And it goes back earlier, I believe, to what Stephen Cole wrote, which was the major reason that we are so prone to sin against others and to take offense when others sin against us is that our sinfulness prompts us to justify ourselves and to blame others. So in our life, are we justifying ourselves? Be on your guard. But Jesus doesn't just stop there. He says in verse 3, If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, this isn't a license today for you to go out and just start messaging a bunch of people with anyone and everyone about their sins. And you're just going to point them out. And you're just going to, like, load up the gun and just start scattering all over the place. Like, hey, you've got to do this. Pastor told me to do this. And this is why, like, no, no, no. Like, you have to be careful. It's not what I'm saying today, right? But it is emphatic when Luke wrote your brother, because this, this rebuke, right? If you go back to the, the passage, it says that the apostle, or uh, and if, he, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. So if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he sins, and if he confesses right, then you must forgive him. And so in this passage, let me get back to my notes, I had to go back up. 
So this is, this your brother is someone you're close and intimate with, right? It's someone that you actually know what they're going through. It's someone that you actually know what their temptations are. It's someone you actually know maybe their sister's name or their brother's name. It may be somebody you know, like you not just know their family, but you know their history. You know when they got saved. You know, you know things about them that many people do not know. And so that's why Luke is important to say your brother. So it's not just a free-for-all to go and just scatter, spray, and pray, but it's your brother. When your brother sins against you and he repents, you must forgive him. You must forgive him. But this also doesn't negate or override the words of Jesus when he said to check the log in your eye before you go to address the speck in your brother's eye. Because the speck must be addressed, right? Jesus, you've heard me talk about this before, but the speck must be addressed. Jesus never says to not address the speck. He says to check the log in your eye before you address the speck in their eye. And so the speck must be addressed, but the addressing of the speck is your love for this brother or sister because you don't want them to continue down this path of sin and tempting those around them, and so you rebuke them. But first, before you rebuke your brother or sister in Christ, you probably should come to the point of the psalmist in Psalm 139 where he says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So the psalmist is saying, hey, Lord, check my heart. Reveal any sin within my heart. And in the same way is that before we're going around, before we rebuke our brother or sister in Christ, then we go and we say, but Lord, is this in me? Lord, have I done this? Am I guilty of this? What is my motive, Lord? Is my motive thinking that I'm better than them? Is my motive that I finally caught them and I want to catch them red-handed, I want them to know it, or is it, Lord, I know deep within how broken this path of sin and temptation is, and so, Lord, search me, reveal me, and then from your knees most likely, from a point of being wounded by, by being revealed the sins in your life, you go to this person and you rebuke them. You go to this person and you tell them, because once you repent, once you check your heart motive, once you pay attention to yourself, your heart, your proclivity to be the justifier and judge, and you lay it all at the feet of Jesus, once you get off your knees and, or, or crawl to your brother or sister with their speck in their eye, then comes the rebuke. And what's interesting is I don't think I've ever, growing up, ever heard a sermon where the pastor told me to go and rebuke somebody. Like, <laughs> you know, you, you grew up Pentecostal, you might be like, rebuke that demon in the name of Jesus, right? Like, there is that rebuke, you probably, but I never heard this idea, like, this, this just popped out to me, this idea of, like, I've never heard to be told that I should rebuke my brothers and sisters in Christ whom I know closely, right? But, but it's, the difference is the heart. The difference is the motivation. The difference is that we are supposed to be watching out for one another. The difference is that we're looking for the good for, of one another. And so we must have, this is a command from Jesus, right, to rebuke him. Rebuke. Jesus says rebuke here. The heart behind it is to want them to be restored, the one who sinned against us. The issue is we don't want to be told we are wrong, right? The issue is we don't want, I know that I don't want to be told that I'm wrong, but I know 
that if this brother or sister loves me and the Lord is using them to help me to become more like Jesus, then at that moment that I'm being rebuked myself, I don't need to call my inner defense attorney, but rather sit silently and pray that prayer, Lord, search me. God, is this really a thing that I need that has been going on? God, is this really something that's been in my heart? God, I never would have expected this from this person, but God, I know that they love me. I know that they care for me. So God, so in this moment that, so the reason maybe that we don't rebuke and we don't do this because we don't want somebody to do it to us, but, but do you understand that when, if I was walking down the wrong way, if I was driving down the wrong way here in Tyler, Texas, and a cop saw me, and there was eight, eight, three 18-wheelers coming down one of the streets, and he watched me walk down or drive down this way and didn't stop me, right, is that I would assume that guy's probably going to be at fault because he could have stopped me. He had the opportunity, and I wish he would have stopped me. I wish he would have given me a ticket. I wish he would have stopped me in my tracks and said, hey, don't go down that way because it's not going to lead you the way that you want to be led, and there are things coming your way that are going to obliterate you if you keep walking down that path. And the same way is that I would want somebody, and I've had many people, and it's one of the most difficult things when they rebuke you and they tell you and they reveal your heart issues and they show you where you've been lacking, but man, in the weeks, months, years to come, I was so thankful that they called me out in my sin. Because maybe, right, maybe is that this brother or sister might need further clarification Maybe they were really hurt, and I can either ask for forgiveness, repent, and trust they'll forgive, or I can bring clarification gently, and then they might be the ones asking for forgiveness. Either way, Jesus tells us what to do if we rebuke and they repent, is we must forgive. We must forgive. One commentator, uh, Leon Morris, says this, This passage does not mean that one person has to adopt an attitude of being highly critical of others. That's not the point, right? It's just a, okay, who do I need to rebuke? Pastor, don't rebuke. Got to rebuke three people today. You know, who? No, no. It's not what's going on, right? It's, It's, right, pay attention to yourselves, Jesus is saying. Watch yourselves. Look at yourselves. But the context of this passage, he says, stresses forgiveness. It means that though he will be compassionate, He will not be weak. He cannot be indifferent to evil, but this does not mean that he will bear a grudge. He continues, if the offender repents, the believer must forgive him. And his forgiveness must be without limit. When Jesus speaks of seven times in the day, he does not mean that an eighth offense need not be forgiven. He is saying that forgiveness must be habitual. From the world's point of view, a sevenfold repetition of an offense in one day must cast doubt on the genuineness of the sinner's repentance. But that is not the believer's business. His business is forgiveness. And I love that last part, right? Someone sinning against us seven times in a day and then repenting, then we are to forgive them, right? Like seven times they did the same thing And they came and they repented every single time. And then I'm supposed to forgive them? Like, they're obviously not learning their lesson. And not just that, but if they did it a hundred times, Jesus is still saying, forgive them? 
like you must forgive them, but yet Jesus' command is still the same, right? Because our inner defense lawyer is coming in and saying they didn't mean it. They don't did it. Jesus had probably, you know, he probably didn't realize. If Jesus would have known what they would have done eight times now, and not just today, but the past 30 days, then there's no way he would have asked me to forgive them because look at what they're doing. Obviously, their heart is not in it. They're not real. This confession is not real, but yet Jesus' command is the same. You must forgive them because our business is not to check the genuineness of someone's repentance. Our business is forgiveness. Our business is forgiveness. Now, you're probably thinking the same thing that the apostles did when they first heard this, right? Which was, this seems impossible. This seems crazy. Lord, increase our faith. And now you know why they said increase our faith. Because this is not, these just four, two, three verses of commands are difficult, difficult things to follow and to, to do, to obey if you're doing it on your own. You see, they understood what we must understand today, that obeying Jesus, forgiving, rebuking, paying attention to ourselves cannot happen without Jesus in us. It cannot happen on our own strength, willpower, desire, habits, or anything else. We need faith. Like, you need faith to do this. You cannot go rebuke without faith. You cannot forgive without faith. You cannot love without faith. You cannot do any of these things. You cannot pay attention to yourself without faith. You cannot count the weaker brother as more important than your freedom without faith. You cannot do any of these things without faith. Because we need more faith to live a life of faith. You need more faith to be able to trust that when you obey, when you are keeping your mouth shut, when you're not sending that message, when you're not posting that post, when you're not making that phone call, when you're rebuking them, when you're forgiving them for the umpteenth time, that it's going to be worth it. And at some point, you're holding on to that at some point, something's going to change in their life. There's hope, right? It's the only difference between believers and non-believers is that we have hope. We have hope that either it'll change in this earth if the Holy Spirit changes their hearts now, if they're a believer, if they call themselves a brother and sister in Christ, or one day it's going to change whenever they realize their sin and their standing before Jesus, right? Is at some point we're holding out, and though we can't worry about their heart, their decision, we just focus on what we're supposed to handle, which is what? Our forgiveness. Because look at your life right now. How many times have you confessed the same sin over and over? How many times have you broken promises to God? How many times have you said you would stop doing something and then you went right back? You've done it so many times that you are ashamed at some moments to say that you truly follow Jesus or talk about him, or to think that you are, sometimes it can lead you to think that you are so sinful that your sin is greater than his grace. But Paul shoots that assumption and says that where grace, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, right? You cannot outsin the grace of God. Your sins don't compare with the blood of Jesus, who, as we sang earlier, paid for all of our past, present, and future sins. And so if you look back at your life, how many times have you confessed the same sins, said you would stop, and yet went back over and over? And yet every time the Spirit convicts you, the Spirit's rebuking you, you repent. And what do you find? God's forgiveness. Every single time 
you repeated that cycle. Then even when you are in sin, he is there waiting for you to turn around. He wants you to find wholeness and true satisfaction in him alone. And this is why we can forgive those who've been rebuked. And this is why we can, who've been rebuked and who repent. And that's the key, is that in the Christian life, when we confess our sins, when we repent, it's not because we have to get saved all over again. No, it's us showing that we are making war against our sin and the ways of this world and the nature and the devil. And it shows that we understand how much God loves us and that the Bible is true when it says that nothing can separate us from the love of God. I was reading this one article and it talked about how as believers that when we sin, it's almost as if you, you walk into a room and it's, it's all these windows and the sun is shining through. And that you're a believer and the sun is shining through these windows. But when you sin, it's like closing the drapes. Is that you close the drapes and you no longer feel the warmth. You no longer have the light. You no longer, you put something between you and God. It doesn't mean that God's love isn't still there shining through, waiting for that repentance, for that confession to break through, to move through. And you're making war saying, I know this was wrong, but Lord, I'm bringing this back to your feet. And so you bring it back to the foot of the cross. Say, God, I thank you that you paid for this sin. And so you move back the drapes and that sun is shining again. Because in, no matter our sin, no matter what we do, is that the sun is still going to be there despite us putting drape after drape after drape between us and God by us not living the life that he has called us to live in this life of repentance, in this life of forgiving, in this life of obeying him fully. And so every time we repent, when the Holy Spirit convicts, God has forgiveness waiting for us. So we too should have forgiveness waiting for those whom we rebuke, whom we're trying to bring back to the family of God. It's like the story of the prodigal son. Um, if you want to turn your Bibles to Luke 15, uh, Luke chapter 15, and we're going to read starting in verse 11. And it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible or didn't get up to get a Bible. But it says this, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, Give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants." And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, 
Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. And if we look back at verse 20, I want to read that again. That while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. You see, the father in this story, like our father in heaven, is standing, waiting to embrace us, to kiss us. The son confesses his sins, his unworthiness, but the father responds not by a scolding, not by a firm talking to, not a reminder of the weight of his mistakes or our mistakes, but rather he gives him the best clothes, the ring, the shoes, and they feast and they celebrate. See, some of you sitting in here today are a long way off. And I want to remind you that God knows all your sins. He's seen all the mistakes you made, but he is standing, waiting to bring you home. He has the fatted calf waiting for you to confess, repent, and come home. He has forgiveness waiting. More than that is he is ready to clothe you in the righteousness of Christ. He's ready to give you the ring of the family to show that you are his child now and forever. And he is not here to go over all your sins, but to remind you that they were paid for on the cross. And now you can be washed and be as white as snow. So come home today. Come to the Lord. Come back to the Lord. And for parents in the room, maybe, maybe this May this be an example for when your wayward child comes back home. If that relationship is severed, there will be a time to address the misconduct, the sins, but when they come home, when they try to initiate the relationship, don't push them away. Don't remind them of their sins. Don't or embrace them, love them, kiss them, celebrate with them like you've never celebrated before. Because your Father in heaven has this for you. And so I want to close with verses 7 through 10. 7 through 10. If you can stand with me this morning. Starting in verse 9, he says this. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? Well, we'll start all the way back in verse 7. Let's just start in verse 7. Verse 7, will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from that field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. If you just imagine like the imagery there, right? Like I know after long days of work, you're tired. You just want to come home. You're done. You don't want to do anything. You've done all this stuff. You're worn out and you come in and then you're, you know, right? Like you're not going to tell this servant, right? Hey, come and just, hey, go get cleaned up. Go, go take a long bath, take a bubble bath, put some Epsom salt. Like you're not going to, you're not going to get any of that, right? When that servant is done tired from the fields and he comes into that, to the, to the palace that day, to the master's house, 
The master's going to tell him, hey, go get me food. Go get this ready. Go get everything that I need. And the servant's dead tired and worn out, doesn't want to do anything else. And yet he tells them, hey, go and do, go and whatever. And if you think about it, is that it's like the Christian life and the way that, man, it can get so tiring to obey Jesus. It can get so tiring to keep forgiving, to keep forgiving them, though they repeat and repeat. It can be tiring to want to do the good that God has called you to do. It can be tiring to watching yourselves, checking your heart, doing all of these things. It can be very tiresome to obey Jesus all the time. This is why I said you can't do it by yourself. And yet, at the end, Jesus says, when you have done all that you were commanded, all we're supposed to say is we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. If you look at a, or if you look at a coin, a dime, quarter, whatever, there's usually heads and tails. There's two sides. And as, and as Christians, right, we belong to God and we are, let's say, his quarter. And so on one side of the quarter, for illustrative purposes, we are his children, right? We are called back home. We are in the family of God. He calls us friend. But on the other side of that coin is that we are his servants. And the Bible tells us that we were slaves to sin and now we are slaves to righteousness. You were a slave to this world, to the ways of this world, and once you're a Christian, you are now a slave to what the Lord is calling you to do. Meaning, you don't have a choice. You didn't have a choice before. You were living that life, thought you had a choice. You didn't really have a choice. Now that you understand that life, God has given you a new life, and so now you have this choice to make the right choice, and that when you pursue Jesus, it becomes automatically and just, it's so worth it. But you see, God didn't have to save you. He didn't have to offer you forgiveness. He didn't have to give you Jesus, but out of his love, he did it. And we have the intimacy of being his children, but our purpose and our duty to him is to be ultimately his vessel in our life, in this world. We were slaves, but now slaves to sin, now we're slaves of righteousness. We are his servants. Everything we read earlier of rebuke, repent, paying attention, forgiving our commands. And so on this side of the coin, it's not like a father is like, I'll get to it later. No, you are his servant. We are unworthy servants. We don't deserve to have been saved, and yet he saved us. And so now it should be automatic that we are obeying and watching ourselves. Why? Because the master has asked us to. And then when we obey, this is important, is that we shouldn't expect anything in return. We obey because we are brought home and we get to serve our Father in heaven. We obey because Jesus obeyed perfectly and received a gruesome death, but then rose again to have eternal life. We may suffer when we obey. You may not get a raise if you obey. You may not get the life you wanted if you obey, but it doesn't change that we are called to obey even if it costs us something in this world today. When we think about obeying and the cost of it, and temptation comes in to say that your way is better than God's, and it says you can disobey, he loves you, right? It's no big deal, he loves you. It's no big deal, you can ask for you know, confession, repentance later. What you say to that temptation is this, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Because our duty is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And we enjoy God when we are most satisfied in him 
And when we are most satisfied in him, we obey God, and he is most glorified in us. So who will you obey today? Who, which brother or sister do you need to bring back into the faith? Which relationship do you have that you need to call them out? But first you need to say, search me, O Lord. Who do you need to forgive who's repented? Who do you need to pray for them to repent and come to the end of themselves? And lastly, do you see yourself as unworthy or do you see yourselves as entitled and that God owes you everything just because you showed up to church today and maybe two times this year? Thanks for listening to today's sermon. We hope this helps you on your journey to glorify God by enjoying him and making disciples who make disciples.